0: If you'd please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 10, we're going to be looking at one verse this morning, verse 13, and we looked at this verse last week in the context of verses 1 through 13, but this verse, verse 13, has much broader application in the immediate context, and this verse is really a standalone verse, it provides general biblical wisdom beyond the immediate context. And this is an important verse, it's, it's an encouraging verse, and it was far too much. If I would have tried to do it last week, we would have gone in a completely different, uh, different uh, direction, and the, and the sermon would have been about two hours long. So the nice thing about preaching week after week is I can slow down, I can dig into to one verse, and, and that's what, exactly what we're going to do today. So the verse we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 10.13. Brothers and sisters, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this verse. We thank you for all of your word. But Lord, we do know that we need your Holy Spirit. That we are dull, our hearts are dull. I am dull. My words are dull without your spirit in igniting them. And that's what we pray, Father, that your spirit will ignite my words. Your spirit will open our hearts to hear from you. And, Father, that we will be comforted. We will be challenged. And, Father, we will see you in this verse. Father, we pray that you are glorified above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no longer, no, no matter how long... A person has been a Christian, no matter how mature we may be in our faith, no matter how long we've been faithfully walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are always surprised. I am always surprised. Surprised by the fact that we actually live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, and it surprises us. We're surprised that the world is falling apart, like something wrong is happening. We are surprised by wars and pandemics. We're surprised by cancer by inflation, by stock market crashes, by recessions. We're surprised by broken relationships. We are surprised by untimely deaths. And we're distressed. We are distressed by life in this fallen world. We are weighed down by the troubles. But in reality, rather than being surprised by these calamities in this world, what should actually surprise us is the joy. We should not be surprised by the fact that we get sick. Decay is normal in a fallen world. what well, we should be surprised by the fact that we are actually as healthy as we are. We should not be surprised by war, as if somehow we are so rational and we've evolved beyond something so primitive as, as war. See, fallen man has rejected the authority of God. And we, each one of us, has set ourselves up as our own personal God. And when one of these gods has a conflict with another, war and strife is inevitable. What's to surprise us is that by God's common grace, he has given us so much peace, so much prosperity over the last few decades. Even looking back over human history, we realize that hostility, that danger, that strife, this is the norm. And peace and prosperity, that is the abnormality. Now, This doesn't mean that we should not strive against this decay. We certainly should. We should work for peace, we should strive to have good relations with all. We should battle against diseases. We should work for human flourishing. This is the creation mandate that God himself has given to our race. But on the other hand, we realize that the deck is stacked against us. We realize that we are swimming upstream. We realize that often it takes so much effort to stay in place. So much effort just to have a to slow the rate of decline that comes as we age. My friends, this is life in a fallen world. And you're probably thinking to yourself, why did I come to church today? Right? If I wanted to be depressed, I could stay home and watch the news shows, the talking heads on the Sunday morning news shows. But we must understand the reality of a fallen world. See, denying this reality does not change this reality. Denying this reality, what it does is it limits our ability to carry out the creation mandate. It limits our ability to fight against this decay. And even worse, it blinds us to the only solution to this fallen world. And that solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. But this truth makes us uncomfortable. Even as Christians, we don't want tribulation. I don't want tribulation. I want comfort. I want health. I want wealth. I want good relationships. I want everyone to love me and to admire me. This is what we all want. And just because we want it, and just because God, by his common grace, we often do have health and wealth and good relationships, this does not change the fact that we do live in a fallen world and that we will, as Christians, even as Christians, experience trials and temptations. So the question is, how do we survive how do we thrive in this unpleasant reality? The reality that we live in a fallen world. Well, God, in his grace, he has given us his word to guide us. And he has given us this verse in particular, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, to instruct us, to comfort us, to encourage us while we are in the midst of this tribulation, while we are faced with the hard, cold facts of this reality, a reality that we so desperately want to deny now, verse 13 does not change this reality, does not change the reality of a fallen world. But what it does is it gives us another reality. It gives us another truth, really a deeper truth. And this truth changes our perspective. It gives us hope. It allows us to be effective, effective in our task, our main task, glorifying God. And it allows us to find joy even in the midst of these tribulations. So what we're going to do is just are going to look at a couple of observations from this verse. The first thing we need to understand is that there's a dual meaning in the word temptation. The the, the Greek word here has a double meaning. It means both trial and temptation. And both meanings are seen in this verse. So what is the difference between a trial and a temptation? Well, trials come from God. Trials are always meant for our good. They are meant to purify us as God's people, to allow us to grow in grace, to make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And trials are used to bring God's elect to salvation, bring them to the end of themselves, where they cease to trust in themselves, their own ability, and they look up to God for their salvation. In the trials, they make us despair of ourselves, just like we sang in that, in that song from John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow. We despair of ourselves and we turn to God. Trials are meant for our good. Trials are meant to bring God glory. Temptations, on the other hand, do not come from God. Temptations come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are always meant for our harm. They are meant to dishonor God. They are meant to destroy those who bear his image. Where trials draw us closer to God, allow us to glorify God, Temptations drive us away from him. Trials lead to obedience to God, obedience to his word. Temptation leads us to disobedience. It leads us to sin. And that's the goal of temptations, to cause us to rebel against God, to, to sin against God. And the thing is, the very same event, the very same object can be both a trial and a Temptation but our response to the same event will be different, whether it's a trial or a temptation. See, Scripture tells us we are to flee temptation. We are to flee anything that is going to cause us to sin, anything that's going to cause us to rebel against God. Paul says flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from idolatry, the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 10.14. Flee from youthful passions, 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy 2.22. But trials are different. Trials, we are to remain steadfast. James tells us in in James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And we're going to look at these two reactions in, in more detail shortly. So that's the first observation. The second observation from this verse is that these trials and temptations that we face, they are not uncommon. We're told in the first part of this verse that no temptation... No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. My friends, trials and temptations, they are normal. They are what is to be expected. They are common in this fallen world. And when, not not if, but when we face these trials and temptations, even extreme trials, don't think something unique is happening to you. Don't think that you're experiencing trials and temptations means that God's mad at you, that God's judging you. He's angry with you. Don't think that this world is not fair. Don't think you're being persecuted. My friends, they are common. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. And these trials are common. They happen to each one of us. I heard it said that there's three types of people in the world. Those who currently go through a trial, those who've just come out of a trial, and those who are about to go into a trial. My friends, none of us are excluded. Now, just because these trials and temptations are common, this does not mean they are easy. Not at all. They certainly are not. Many of these trials are excruciatingly painful. I mean, just think of things that we're looking on the news. The the war in, in Ukraine. Many of the prayer requests. These are excruciating. And we know that these trials and temptations that we face, we know that they are beyond us. They're beyond our ability to handle them, beyond our ability to deal with them on our own. We need help, and where do we look for help? Well, thankfully, we have friends. Thankfully, like we have friends who lift us up. Family. We have doctors. We have lawyers. We have other experts who come to our aid during our time of trial and temptation. And these people certainly help. They help us bear our load. They provide assistance and expertise that allow us to navigate these difficult terrain that has been allotted to us in this fallen world. But there is a limit even to this assistance. There are some trials that are beyond the ability of even the most skilled and most committed of our advocates. There are times when we run out of options, either medically or legally or financially. There are times when we are at the end of our rope. And that's when we need to look beyond the horizontal plane. We need to look beyond human assistance. That's when we need to look up. And this brings us to our next observation from this passage. And this is a beautiful observation. God is faithful. God can be trusted. God will provide what no other person, what no other human institution can. God will provide relief. Look at the next clause in this verse. It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Just let that sink in. God is faithful. God can be trusted. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And God cannot lie. God's word cannot lie. If God says he's going to do something, he will do it. It's more certain that the sun than the sun will shine. More certain that either one of us, any one of us, will take our next breath. God is faithful. And what is promised? What is the promise that our faithful God makes in this verse? It says that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. So what does this mean? Let me tell you what it does not mean. You may hear people say this all the time, but this is a false hope. This is a promise that's not found in this verse. This is a promise that's not found anywhere in Scripture. And the wrong meaning often is attributed to this verse is, God will never give me more than I can handle. You ever hear that? God will never give me more than I can handle. My friends, this is a lie. God often gives us more than we can handle. And can you see see just how cruel these words are to someone who is crushed under the weight of a trial or temptation, to flippantly say to him, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. And the person screams, I'm dying here. I'm being destroyed. This is definitely more than I can handle. You may be wondering, what's, what's the difference between these verses? God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, and God will never give you more than I can handle. Isn't it just saying the same thing differently? Absolutely not. It's actually the polar opposite. And it completely misses the point of this verse. Look at the focus of the statement, God will never give me more than I can handle. Who's it on? It's on me. It's on what I can handle. I'm the one enduring by my own ability. And see, my ability is the problem in the first place. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of the rope of anyone who's trying to help me. I'm out of options. God has certainly given me more than I can handle. If it wasn't the case, I would be handling it at this very moment. But look at this verse. It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Who is the focus on here? The focus on God. God is the one who is active. We are passive. The truth of this verse does not depend on our ability. It depends on God's ability. And we see this clearly just in the grammar of the verse. The verb let, let. God will not let you be is an active verb. It's an active and a future tense. It's indicating that it's an active, ongoing promise of something that God will always do. And the verbs that relate to us, tempted and ability, in the Greek it's, it's literally you are able. They're passive. They're, they're present tense. That means God is actively preserving us. He's actively preventing us from being destroyed by these present, current trials and temptations. And this fact is so important for us to see because our natural inclination is to look to ourselves. Our natural inclination is to trust in ourselves, to find a solution in ourselves, to see ourselves as active, to see God as passive. And this is deadly because there is no power in and of ourselves. The power is in God alone. And my friends, this is the essence of sin. This is the essence of fallen man. It's works righteousness. We look to what we do. We look at a solution in me. I am the master of my own destiny. If we do look to God, it's only in a, a supporting role, not a primary role. God helps those who help themselves, right? As Benjamin Franklin, not scripture says. God is my co-pilot. God is my assistant. But I'm really the one who's in charge. I get the glory. See, this view is so obviously false, but so universally believed. Again, some of you may be confused, thinking, does it really matter who's active, God or me? Isn't the result the end the same? I will not be tempted beyond my ability? No, not at all. And this is not just abstract, this is extremely practical. Let me show you why it's so extremely practical. See, the correct understanding of this verse is essential. Because it affects what we do during the trial. If the focus is on ourselves, we will focus internally during the temptation. We will not look to the triune God who is the source of our hope, the source of our strength in the times of trial and temptation. We will not rest in Christ. We will not receive his peace like a river in the midst of the trial. We will not be able to say, it is well with my soul in the middle of intense pain and anguish. We'll not be able to cry out with confident hope like the prophet Habakkuk does. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, nor the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Do you see what he's saying? He is saying economic ruin, complete and utter economic ruin. Stock market crashes, I lose my job. The Inflation takes away the value of everything in my savings account. Everything is gone. That's what he's saying. And you know what he says? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We can only say that if we're focusing on him. That is our confidence when we look to the Lord. But worst of all, worst of all, when we look internally rather than upward during our trials and temptations, we neglect the most powerful weapon we have against temptations, and that's prayer. Just like we said, bring it to the Lord in prayer as we sung. See, we will not fervently cry out to him in prayer. We will not be like that. The persistent widow who relentlessly cried for justice from the unjust judge will be complacent. We'll be unexpected in our prayers. Just formality, wanting to get them over with quickly so we can get to the real work of doing things ourselves. And if we truly understood this, we would never, never neglect prayer we would know that it is the most effective thing that we could ever do. That we have unhindered access to the sovereign of the universe. And he is ready, he is willing, he is able to answer every single one of our petitions. And not answer them merely as we ask in our sinful ignorance, but as we would ask if we had his wisdom and his righteousness and he answers these prayers in the way that will bring us maximum good and that will bring him maximum glory. That is our third observation. The next observation that we see is the way that God keeps us from being tempted beyond our ability. And this way is different really for a trial which comes from God, which is meant for our ultimate good in God's glory, and from a temptation For temptation, which comes from the world, the flesh and the devil, and is always intended for our harm, to lead us to sin, to dishonor God. And look at the last clause of this verse. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember, we are to flee temptations. We are to escape from these temptations. If you are tempted by alcohol, you don't hang around a bar. You flee. You get out of there. If you are tempted by food, you don't go to an all-you-can-eat buffet you get out of there. If you're tempted by an adulterous relationship, you get away from the temptation, even if it means changing jobs. And here's the amazing reality of this verse. God, the omnipotent sovereign of the universe, will always work reality in a way that you can escape the temptation. He will always have a way to keep you from sinning, a way to keep you from disobedience and dishonoring his holy name. When King David was in the, the wilderness being being chased by Saul in 1 Samuel 25. He comes upon this wicked and foolish man, Nabal, who he had helped. He had defended him. He had made sure that none of his flocks were lost. And when David goes up and his men ask for some help, ask for some food, this foolish Nabal is rude and, and mistreats David and insults David and his men. And David in his anger is ready to kill Nabal and all of his men. But God sends the wise and gracious Abigail, to assuage David's intense anger, to prevent David from this sin, from slaughtering these men. God provides a way of escape from the temptation. Now sadly, in 2 Samuel 11, as we looked at a few weeks ago, it tells of David's sin with Bathsheba. Remember, there was a servant. God had provided a way out there. A servant reminded him, he said, this woman is off limits. This woman is the wife of Uriah. But David did not Heed that warning and make use of the way that God had provided. But God will provide. That doesn't mean these ways are going to be easy. Sometimes these ways of escape from sinning will be extremely costly. Just as was the case of Joseph when he was seduced to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. Remember in Genesis 39, Joseph literally had to, to flee her embrace. And because Joseph refused her advances, she accused Joseph falsely of attempted rape. And Joseph ended up spending time in prison. The way of escape may be costly, but God will always provide a way of escape. We will never be forced to sin. This is the way God protects us from temptation. But what about protection from trials? Remember, trials come from God and they're intended for our good. they draw us closer to him, to make us more like Christ. Trials are, for the most part, they are painful. And they will they, they may become a temptation only if we use a sinful means to get out of the trial. But in and of themselves, they are not sinful. And just to, to clarify, just because trials come from God, they're meant for our good, this doesn't mean that we don't try to get out of them if we can. It does not mean that we do not look for non-sinful ways of relief from the trial. We're just not to use sinful means for the trial. If God provides a way of escape that does not involve sin, we certainly must take it. We should take it. However, for the most part, with trials, God intends them for our good. And and premature ending of the trial would limit the good that he intends. And when this is the case, God, through his sovereignty, may temporarily close all lawful means of escape from this trial. This is God's doing. He's doing this in his wisdom. Now, we don't stay in the midst of a a painful trial when God provides a a non-sinful way of escape because because it's good for us. No, that's, that's not faithful. That's being insane. But we do not need to close the doors. God himself will do this. And when he does this, this first tells us not that God will provide a way of escape, but that God will provide the way that you may be able to endure it. He'll provide the way for us to endure it. And this, my friends, is our confidence. That God will give us the grace to endure the trial. Again, the verb to be able, it's passive. It's in the present tense. This means that, that God is doing the work. He is enabling us to endure this. He's giving us the grace for the moment. It's not future grace. It's grace for this moment. It is current grace. And when we are in the moment of grace, the grace to endure the trial, God then gives us his perspective. He will let us know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this trial is not meant to hurt us, but this trial is meant to bless us. It's meant to refine us. It's it's something... That, I should say, sometimes he may even show what he's doing in this trial, but, but oftentimes he doesn't. Oftentimes it's afterwards, only afterwards we can understand what he's doing, the work that he's doing. But nevertheless, he gives us confidence in the midst of the trial. Confidence to know that this trial is for our good. And this truth is so beautifully communicated in, in the fourth verse of that magnificent hymn, How Firm a Foundation, we'll be singing that as our hymn of response. Just listen to these words. It says, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The, fa- the flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. God's word gives us confidence when we are not in these times of trials that this grace will be sufficient for us. This is, gives us the confidence. We really have no fear because of this. So what's this mean? What what is our application from this verse? Well, first of all, if anyone here is not a believer, if anyone on the live stream is not a believer, anyone who could hear my voice on sermon audio in 10 years listening to this, your only application is one. Become a new creation in Christ. That's your only application. This is the application of every single sermon I, I, I preach. Come to Christ. See, the truth is that every single one of us, believer and unbeliever alike, we will face trials. We will face temptations. They are an inevitable part of life in this fallen world. And if you're not a believer, the sole purpose of these trials is only one. It's only one thing. It's to bring you to Christ. That is the only purpose of these trials. The sole purpose of these trials and temptations are to make you despair of yourself, to realize that you cannot save yourself. And that realization to fall upon the mercy of Christ. For you to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. This is your only application. It is to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus, the sinless son of God, took upon himself your sin. He died in your place. He paid the death penalty for your personal sins. Not not general sins, not for the world, but for you as an individual specifically, and that Jesus' perfect righteousness was given to you, again, personally, specifically. So when God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. Your application is beyond to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you are a new creation in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is your only application. For those of us who are in Christ, for the rest of us, who are united to Christ, our application is confidence. Our application is peace. Our application is comfort. Our application is recognizing Jesus' own words that I quoted earlier. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, in this fallen world, we will have tribulation. Not might, but we will have tribulation. But take heart, because our Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And because we are united to him by grace alone through faith alone, we too have overcome this world. So there is no fear, only joy. Joy that he is using every trial, every tribulation to make each one of us more and more into the image of Christ. Making us more useful in his kingdom. Making us more useful to bring him glory. We also have confidence. Confidence that the Lord will protect us, that he will guard us during our time of tribulation. Confidence that we will be successful. Confidence that he will be glorified. And this confidence is not in ourselves, but it is in his word. It is in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this verse. Lord, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this confidence. And Father, I pray that if there are any here, any who hear my voice who are not believers, Lord, that you will change that that they will come, they will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel and become a new creation. And for those of us who are a new creation, Lord, we will be comforted. We will not fear trials, we will not fear temptations, but we will look to Christ and we will know that in him we will be successful and that you are using all these to grow us more into the image of your son, using these trials to make us more useful in your kingdom. And above all, you will be glorified. We pray these all in Jesus' name. Amen.